Uh, do me a favor right here on the front end. If you brought your Bible this morning with you and uh, you don't mind, just kind of thumb over to Genesis chapter 28 and save that for later in the message. You'll, you'll see why in a little bit, but if you don't mind bookmarking that, it'll make it uh, easier for you to turn over to that when I ask you to. Um, over the last uh, five weeks, um, we've been looking at John chapter 1. I, I hear there's bets being taken now of how many years we're going to actually be in the book of John. <laughs> that it's taken us five weeks to get to the end of the chapter. It should be an indicator to you. Um, but over, over the last five weeks, we've been looking at this study we're calling The Portrait. And The Portrait is, is based on the fact that in John chapter 1, verse 18, John writes, No man has seen God at any time, but the Son, the only begotten Son, He has explained Him, meaning Jesus. And so if you imagine that we've got this blank portrait this blank canvas, and each time we see something about the nature and character of God pop up in Scripture, we got another brushstroke going on the canvas, something that will show us by the end of the study what God looks like. That's what we're told. Jesus explains him. I'm aware that because God is not visible to us, it makes him quite a mystery to us. Would you not agree? Absolutely, that we cannot fully comprehend God. It seems like we can't even scratch the surface. So it shouldn't surprise us that God says that about himself. Look with me up on the screen and you'll see in Isaiah 55, this is God saying, I'm hard to understand. Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than than your ways, and my thoughts, than your thoughts. So it should not be surprising to us, although it is, that many times God's actions within humanity is a mystery to us. He mystifies us. One of those mysteries to me, specifically, I'll bet it is to you, is when God says, you haven't even chosen me, I chose you. We're humans because we have a human nature, we would say, well, no, I made that decision to follow God. We have free will. God gave us free will. I made that decision. But God would say, who chose who? And it's a perfect description this morning in the passage that we're going to look at. As a matter of fact, God expresses that himself in, in Psalms 53. Look up on the screen with me. Psalm 53, 2. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there is anyone who understands who seeks after God. We're told in Scripture that we don't even really in our own nature seek after God. God draws us. The Old Testament writers painted a beautiful picture when they said, like with loving cords, he surrounds us like with a rope and draws us to him. Not jerking us, but just drawing us gently to him. So this passage that we're going to look at this morning is a balance between man choosing God or God choosing man. You remember where we left off last week, in, uh, if you were here, um, Jesus, for the very first time, encountered Peter, and immediately he changes Peter's name. Peter was known as Simon. Simon was his Hebrew name. Jesus calls him Cephas. Aramaic is the name Cephas. In Greek, it's translated Peter. Look with me on the screen, John 1.42. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. You imagine encountering someone for the very first time in your life, 
and immediately they say, you're Tom? I don't like that name. Jack. I'm going to call you Jack from now on. Uh, That takes an intimate friend to be able to call you by a different name or someone with great authority. In this case, both. Now, Jesus wasn't his friend yet because they had no human relationship, but he had the authority as a rabbi to speak into his life. And he said, you're not yet the rock, but you will be called the rock. I'm going to call you to this higher level. You're going to be stable and strong. There's a very intimate relationship between a rabbi and his students, between a teacher and a pupil in this setting. Now, that's very hard for us in our American mind to grasp that because today we leave and go to universities to study. Some choose UCLA, some choose MSU, some go to the University of Florida, and we sit in large classrooms where professors expound to us. In this setting... A student would travel day in and day out with their teacher, going to their professor's home and living with them, literally moving in. And so if Jesus played Frisbee, and I don't know if he did, but when they had times of activity, the disciples were there. When they walked, the disciples were there. When they ate, the disciples were there. They're always learning, always taking in. So this bond builds between the teacher and his disciple. And it's a very intimate relationship. Lifetime never went away, this bond that developed. So it shouldn't surprise us in Scripture when we see the rabbi, Jesus, the teacher, interacting with his disciples, the students, and saying things that seem like socially unacceptable. You would change the name of somebody immediately the first time you met them, or you would speak so harshly to people. But that's the relationship, the give and take between the teacher and the student. So in verse 43, we see an example of that. That's what we're going to take off this morning. Verse 43 starts it out. The next day, he, meaning Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And, he, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. You ever read through Scripture and you see Jesus saying to people, follow me, and they drop everything they've got, and they just go following as though they had no life previously? And they just drop everything and they begin following the master. That's part of the teacher-student relationship that you see in the first century. When a rabbi, especially someone of great prestige, invited you, this is an invitation to become a student of his, this is a high, high honor. So the follow me invitation is Jesus saying, you want to become my student, I'll be your professor, and you will learn from me. So for these guys from a fishing background to be invited to sit at the feet of a professor was extraordinary, and that's why they jump in and take this invitation. This is the family's held this to a very high value. So it says the next day, this meaning the day after Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, where we left off last week, Jesus leaves the Jordan River area, and that's where John's baptizing people, and he goes north. He heads up into this region known as Galilee. So he goes into Galilee, and he finds Philip. Now, Philip is a Galilean from a town called Bethsaida. And Bethsaida is also Peter's hometown, and it's also Andrew's hometown. And because this is their hometown, they know it intimately. This is a fishing village. Bethsaida actually means house of fishing. That's the way it's translated. So these guys make their living as working men. And they're encountering the ultimate seeker, meaning God. See, we think in our world, 
We, we hold, actually, in churches, seeker services for people who are seeking God. And in, in church conversation, it's very, very common to say, we'll have a seeker-sensitive service, meaning it's very friendly to people seeking God. But we see that God is actually the ultimate seeker. He seeks man and goes after him. So we see that when he says, follow me, Philip. He's inviting him into this relationship. So Philip is brought by no one. Jesus just says, follow me. Come, I'm going to invite you to join me. So the contact is initiated by God. Right here, we see immediately God inviting Philip to become his disciple. Jesus said this himself, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He says it again in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So regardless of how you got here this morning, If a friend invited you to come into church to investigate the things of God, what God is saying is, I'm the one who's been drawing your spirit. I'm the one who's been working on your heart, drawing you in. Regardless of who initiated the contact, those who come to Christ or those who begin seeking after God, God first sought us is what we're told. You can learn a great deal about how God seeks people by watching how he invited individuals to join him in this relationship. Oh, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of how he invited Peter and James and John to become his disciples, but just let me briefly explain it to you. Jesus is walking along a shoreline. He's on the beach of the Sea of Galilee, and there's this huge multitude following him. And as he's walking along, he looks down the shoreline and sees a couple boats beached on the shore. And because this crowd is so large and they're pressing against him, he's kind of backing up towards the water. So he turns to one of the guys who owns the boat and says, hey, would you mind pushing your boat out into the water so I can sit in it and teach? Now, these guys at this point, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, are fishermen. And they're washing their nets. They did the third shift They've been up all night fishing, and they've got to clean their nets so they can go in and catch some shut-eye so they can go back out and work later in the day. So Peter's response is, yeah, I'll, I'll push it out. So he pushes it out. Jesus sets out in the boat off the shore where the water is very calm, and quietly people can hear his voice across the water. After he finishes, he says to the lead fisherman, Peter, how about if you guys go out into the deep water and let down your nets? Now, Peter's response right away is, we worked all night. I mean, we pulled the third shift. We're tired. But because you say so, yeah, we'll do it. So they go out. They let down their nets. Scripture says that the nets were so full of fish that they began snapping. Peter begins signaling to his partners to bring their boat out, and their nets begin to snap, and the boats begin to sink. And at that point... Peter realizes he's got God in the boat, and he collapses. He's overcome. He's seized, Scripture says, with fear, and he begs that Jesus would leave him because he's astonished of what just happened. He's a fisherman. If he knows anything, he knows fishing, and he knows he just fished all night and caught nothing. So we see God coming into the midst of guys who are ordinary workaday men, laborers, washing their nets, interacts with them, invites them to experience something extraordinary. And by that, their whole conception of God changes. Because when Peter begs Jesus to leave him, 
Does Jesus leave him? No. No, as a matter of fact, he says to him, come on, we're going to go catch men now. So they beach their boats, and they follow him. And so Jesus has got this entourage of guys beginning to follow him because he invited them into the relationship. So we see here in this first part with Philip, he's found and he's invited into the relationship. So this first portion, remember this, Philip came at Jesus' invitation. Peter, James, John, the disciples, they came when God invited them in. Verse 45, let's pick it up right here. Philip does something in response. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip found Nathanael, just like Andrew found his brother Simon Peter. He can't keep the news quiet. It's too good. He runs and finds his friend Nathanael, and he says, we've found him. And that doesn't mean Jesus is lost. The word is hiresco, and it means obtained. We've, we've latched on to the one whom Scripture tells us about. Now, my understanding as I look at this is Nathanael appears to be a man of great spiritual depth, at least more so than the other guys. Peter's the hardworking fishing guy. Philip seems to be the guy who's a little bit reserved and standoffish. But Nathaniel is going to need a different type of invitation, so his needs are addressed differently. So Jesus interacts with him. Philip, in this case, uses what Nathaniel knows. Look in your text very closely at verse 45, and it says, He refers to him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. He's talking about the Old Testament. See, this is before the New Testament existed. And so Philip is using what Nathaniel knows. He apparently loves the Word of God. And so his friend is saying, hey, this guy that's written about in Scripture, the Messiah, that we find in the Old Testament, he's here. He's actually in our presence. So I find that Philip is aware of Nathaniel's love for the Word of God, and he uses that and emphasizes it. The one who completes it all, he's right here. So apparently after this brief meeting that Philip had with Jesus... He's convinced to the degree that he's willing to convince his friend. Now, he's right on the money. When he says the Old Testament prophets speak of him, he's exactly right because Jesus used the same example himself a few years later. Look with me on the screen, Luke 24. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 25, so he said to them, you foolish people and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. That's the same thing that Philip said, the one that's written about in the Old Testament. I'm the one that fulfills all this. Now, at this point, I'm sure that he's got Nathaniel's interest until he throws in this last sentence because he identifies him from a region known as Nazareth. It's very common to say, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, because he's identifying him. He's the son of so-and-so, and he's from this particular village. And at that point, I think that's when the alarm warnings start going off. And Nathaniel says, whoa, can't be. Look with me up on verse 46, up on the screen. Nathaniel said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Sounds like a title for a Bible study, doesn't it? Come and see. Inside, some of you know what that is. That's a Bible study that we do here at church. Come and see. So Nathaniel's first impression is wrong. 
He's looking at it through the lenses based on the place of origin. He thinks he knows what's going on. Now, I want you to note this because this is really important later when we get into the text a little bit further. Note that the place is the most important thing to Nathan. The physical location is very high on his agenda. And it doesn't match up with what he knows because Nazareth, there's a stigma attached to it. I grew up in Muskegon County, okay? I rarely tell people that because there's a stigma about Muskegon County. So I tend to say, I'm from the west side of Michigan on the shoreline, all right? Now, among those who live in Muskegon County, we tend to have a ranking system. So if you grew up in Whitehall, you tend to look down your nose at those who grew up in Montague on the other side of the river. So even though you're from a lesser place like Muskegon County, if you're from Whitehall, at least you're better than the people in Montague. So that's the case that's going on here because there's a stigma about Nazareth. The Judeans, the people who lived in Jerusalem, the southern part of Israel, thought they were very high and mighty, but those to the north in Galilee, they were of a lesser class. And the people of Galilee, they looked down on the people of Nazareth even though it was one of their own towns. Look with me up on the screen. You see a reference to this in John 7. They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So they're looking down their very long theological noses, and Nathaniel is very guilty of this. He's saying, There's no way. There's no way the Son of God, the prophet, cannot come out of Nazareth. That's like growing up in Montague. It can't be. So his friend is very gracious. Come and see. So I give credit to Nate because Nathaniel is at least willing to set aside his prejudices and go with him. Pick it up with me in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I take it that Nathaniel's a blunt kind of guy. He's very direct. And he's genuine, he's got a fresh heart, but he speaks what's on his mind, and apparently that's what Jesus sees in him. I'm thinking that he might be referring back to the time when people thought of Jews as being very deceitful people because Jacob was known as the deceiver, the father of Israel. And he's had his name changed to Israel. But there's a tendency among the Greek-thinking people to believe that the Jews, the Israelites, were deceivers. And so I don't know if that's what Jesus is thinking at this point, but he says there's an Israelite here with no deceit. He's got a fresh heart. The word that's used is alethos, and it means genuine, very sincere. What a shock. You're standing in another region thinking there's no way this guy can be the Son of God. And when you encounter him, he already knows you? How do you know my heart? He's never met Jesus. He's never walked with him, and he certainly never talked with him. Yet Jesus accurately describes his character. He sees right down deep into his soul. And do you notice that there's no denial whatsoever on Nathaniel's part? He doesn't say, no, that's not true. He says, how do you know? Look with me at verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Even more shocking than knowing his heart, he saw him in some place where he should not have seen him. Is it like a webcam around here? How did you know that? How do you see me? You imagine if people saw somebody saw you and could describe to you what you did in your bathroom this morning? 
Okay, he's in a private place. He's under the fig tree. I'll explain that to you in just a minute. So what he's doing, this is the reason it's even more shocking, is he's taking Nathaniel to the next level. You don't think it's just enough that I know you. I saw you under the fig tree. I know you. This is supernatural information, only available to Nathan. Only he knew that he was in this removed area underneath this fig tree. And yet this one that he's just met, he didn't just see his physical location. He also knows his heart. How can this be? This is another brushstroke of God. This is your God saying, I see everything. Look with me up on the screen and you'll see Psalm 139. This is consistent with God. O Lord, you notice that it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, like we talked about last week when you see that in the Bible. It means Yehovah. O Yehovah, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately equated with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. Now remember, Nathaniel is predisposed to think there's no way that can be the Messiah. And now his world's starting to crumble around him. And look at his response, verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, I can just picture Philip at this point standing out to the corner saying, Yeah, see, I told you. Look at All his questions are answered. Immediately, this guy who's very theological thinking has had to change his position and recognize that Jesus is something other than just a man from Nazareth. What is it that so thoroughly changes his mind? Because this is pretty weighty for a person who is a Jew, think like a Hebrew, whose entire world is built around the Old Testament and how God interacts with man. For him to declare, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel, he's making a statement about the title. He's overwhelmed by Jesus. This title is not thrown around lightly. As a matter of fact, every good Jewish boy who understood Scripture knew that this is part of the promises from the Old Testament. Let me show you an example of that up on the screen. It comes from Micah 5.2, and you're probably familiar with it from Christmas time. This is printed on gift cards all the time. Look with me up there. Micah 5.2, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from, one w- from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, meaning the king of Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Do you understand that Nathaniel is saying, you're God. You're the king of Israel. You're from the days ancient. How can you be here? So what's the deal with this fig tree that keeps popping up here? I want to explain that to you so you, so you really grasp what's going on. Because Jesus' knowledge of what's going on under the fig tree removes all the doubt. That's what really helped Nathaniel to get to the next level. Jesus not only sees his character, looks into his soul, but he says, I know where you were. Look with me on the screen, verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now, this is not a question. Jesus is stating a fact. Because I said, you believe? 
The word believe is pistuo, and it means a firm conviction. Look with me on the screen. You'll see the definition for it. To have faith by implication to entrust, especially one's well-being to Christ, persuasion or conviction. So this isn't casual. Jesus is saying, you've got a rock-solid belief because of what I said? You're going to see things that will amaze you, Nathaniel. things that will go beyond your thinking. Because I saw you under the fig tree. Here's the deal with the fig tree. Common among Israelite individuals was to go to a place of the fig tree, referred to in Scripture, as a place to study, a place to meditate, to relax, escape the hot afternoon sun, and sit under the shade of the tree. It was also a place to engage in theological conversation. So when we discover here in the story that Nathaniel is under the fig tree, it's very possible, and matter of fact, it's highly likely that he was there communing with God, and his friend came and found him under his fig tree. This is referred to quite a few times in the Old Testament as a symbol of places where men connected with each other. Look with me on the screen at Zechariah 3.10. Speaking of a future day, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree, meaning symbolically into the living room. For us today, it would be like the living room to invite people into a place of community. For them, the fig tree was the place where they would escape and talk about the things of God, theological things. So do you notice what Jesus just did here? He challenges, he challenges the level of belief. He changes Nathaniel's thinking to say, you think that was great? Let me take you to a whole new place. Just because I saw what was hidden made you a believer. God, however, is so gracious that he's never content to leave us where we're at. Just because we arrive at a conclusion based on one thing, he broadens our faith by taking us through a new experience. I find that to be true in my own life. I'll bet you do in your life as well. Where you're at today is much further than where you were at years ago when you first encountered God, or perhaps in the last couple of weeks. Your thinking is broadened and horizons are heightened, taken to a new place. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's taking him to a new place and saying, there's greater things that you haven't seen. I'm going to take you to a place of progress to help you understand. Now, remember with me, when we, in the first couple of weeks from now, um, matter of fact, next week, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, we're not going to be in John because we're coming into the Easter season. And then after Easter, we're going to step back into this. But when we step back into this, we're stepping into one of the miracles that Jesus performed in a town called Cana in which he turned water into wine. Now, what's remarkable about that setting besides the miracle is that's Nathaniel's hometown. So Jesus goes to Nathaniel's neighborhood and performs the first miracle. And as magnificent as these miracles are that we're going to be studying about, that isn't where Jesus is just going to leave it at. He's going to take him to a whole new place by saying, you're going to see greater things than these, things that your mind can't begin to imagine. So we're going to see here in just a second another brushstroke on the canvas because Nathaniel apparently needed to hear something more than just the issue of the fig tree. He needed to hear something more than just that God could see his heart. So Jesus doesn't stop there. He makes another brushstroke on the canvas, 
And he takes Nathaniel back to an ancient incident that happened, we find, in the book of Genesis chapter 28. Before we go to the next verse, I want to take you back to Genesis 28 so you really understand what's going on when Jesus says what he says next. So in Genesis 28, if you don't mind flipping over there, it'll also be on the screen, but roughly here's the setting. There's a man by the name of Jacob. He's the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is on the run for his life from his brother trying to escape because his brother wants to do him in, but he's also going looking for a wife. His dad sends him out with his blessing to go to another country. Because it's a long journey, Jacob has to sleep out in the wilderness. And while he's out in the wilderness, he finds a rock for a pillow. Never done that before in my life, but he apparently doesn't have a pillow with him. So he finds a rock, tucks it under his head, and goes to sleep. And in this setting in Genesis 28, he encounters God just like Nathaniel is encountering God. Pick it up with me at Genesis 28 and verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there. Because the sun had set and he, had, he, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Verse 16, pay special attention to this. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So the next morning when Jacob, the father of Israel, the one who had his name changed, when he wakes up and realizes what he had seen the night before, he says, this place is the gate of heaven. God's angels were descending and ascending on this ladder, and I got to encounter God. This is the place where God and man meet. This is where man experiences God. This is his moment in which he realizes, I got God in the boat. This is like Nathaniel's encounter and Philip's encounter. This is God before me. So what we see now in verse 51 when Jesus speaks is referring back, I believe, to this incident with Jacob. Look with me on the screen, verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. On a ladder? No, on the Son of Man. So we see right here saying Jesus saying to Nathaniel, you're impressed by me seeing the fig tree and you under it? You're about to see the angels descend upon me. I'm the ladder. 
It's no longer the place. It's not the fig tree. It's not the temple. I am the gateway to heaven. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father except through me. I'm the ladder to God now. I am the person. So he uses here something very specific. You ever sat in church and you hear somebody yell out once in a while, Amen? You ever hear that? That's a question. Amen. People yell that out once in a while. That's what Jesus is saying here. Truly, truly. Okay? The Hebrew word for truly, truly is amen, amen. So the transliteration from Hebrew over to Aramaic is the word truly, truly. So Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. You're about to see heaven bust open and they're going to descend upon me because I am the ladder to God. I am the way you're going to experience it. So that's what Jesus wants you to know. That's what he wants Nathaniel to know. I'm the ladder. I'm the access point. So here we have, we're right back to the beginning, this dichotomy, this picture that we had of does God choose man or does man choose God? And we see throughout Scripture here that Jesus is gently pulling and tugging on these hearts so much so that he helps people understand what God looks like, and he paints pictures. I find it remarkable how Jesus chooses to draw these men. Let me show you the different examples as we close, how he chose these different individuals and the uniqueness in their life. First, with John, the one who wrote this book, when he's a young man in his 20s probably, maybe even a late teen, Jesus encounters him through his mentor. John's with his mentor every day. John the Baptist is with John the disciple. And John the Baptist, the mentor, the professor, turns to John the disciple and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. So his mentor points it out to him. The next one I see is Andrew. Andrew, we saw last week, he got invited over. Invitation. The rope is pulling him in. Jesus is saying, Come on and see. Come and see where I stay. Remember that last week? And he stayed with him throughout the night. The next one I saw was Peter. It's his occupation. He's so rock-headed that Jesus has to actually break the nets in his boat. And when the nets start snapping and his boat starts sinking, Peter gets it. At that point, he sees the evidence. God's on the rope pulling me in. And then we see this morning Philip. He's the reluctant one. And Jesus himself had to find Philip and say, come on, follow me. That's specific. And Nathaniel, he needed the theological evidence because he's looking down that very long nose and say, it doesn't fit my picture of God. And Jesus said, yes, I do. Let me show you. And you're about to see things that will amaze you. That sets us up well for where we're headed in the book of John as we study ahead because the things that we see are amazing, church. So I ask you this morning, what does it take with you? What does it take for you to get ignited about chasing after the things of God once you get it. Because this is what your Jesus said to you, John 15, 16. This is a completion of the verse we looked at earlier. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. See, it's just not enough, church, that God chose us and drew us in. He appointed you for a reason. If he didn't have something for you to do, you wouldn't be here. You'd be removed. 
but because you belong to him, you name the name of Christ, he's appointed you for a reason, he's saying, you got to get out there and bear some fruit. Now, here's the deal. We're coming into the Easter season. Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, whether you know it or not, heightens the awareness of individuals who are looking to understand God. And if you've never had a time in your life when you've taken the opportunity to do what Philip did for Nathaniel and invite someone to come and see, I'm going to encourage you to do that over the next two weeks because the things that people will hear will help them to understand who this ladder is, who this one is that stands and says, it's me, I'm greater than all these things. You can't begin to imagine it. So that our fruit would remain, meaning that we would invite people to come and see and grasp this. You're the torch. You're the torch of the church. And one torch has to light the next torch. And the next torch gets lighted from that torch. Whether you know it or not, within New Hope, every single relationship in the metro area of Lansing is represented within our church because of who you know and the people that you know, who they know, and the people that they know, who they know. And we can see the metro area affected for the kingdom of Christ. That's why I say I hope that God will ignite us this morning to really grasp the significance of this, that our entire region could be affected by this word, this knowledge of the gospel of truth. We could be like Nathaniel, like Philip, and say, wow, you are the God of Israel. You are the king. That's where that lethargy has to disappear from, church. What we sang this morning about our souls being ignited, awaken my soul, we need that ignition that we would be that bold to speak on behalf of the kingdom to the degree that you're willing to even go to your friends who are hesitant, who may look down their long noses and say, no, I'm predisposed to not accept what you're about to say. But like Philip was gracious and said, come on, come on, you'll see It'll make sense to you. You'll understand. That's why I'm going to pray for you this morning. So I'm going to pray for our entire church. So if you join me in that, I would love to have you do that. Let's go to the Father. Heavenly Father, it's four minutes past 12, and here we are already through this text and about ready to grab our car keys and head out to lunch. And I... God, I ask that these things not fade from our minds, that we would experience the same passion that we see in the hearts of these individuals in Scripture when they encounter you, that it would not fade away as soon as we walk out the door of the church building. Father, that we would continue to seek after you because you said you're drawing us in. So, Father, I ask that you would do your work. Do your work and release the power of your Holy Spirit to draw individuals to yourself. We don't know what you intend to do over the next two weeks, but I believe it will be magnificent that individuals will name the name of Jesus Christ and will experience an entirely new beginning, a new direction in their life. So, Father, as a result of the music that's performed here and that we sing and participate with, as a result of the children's ministry downstairs, as a result of all the adult classes and the teaching that takes place from behind this podium, God, I ask that you would use it all to advance your kingdom and bless your church. 
We ask this in the mighty name of our King Jesus. Amen. Have an excellent week.